Moses spends 40 years in Egypt, spends 40 years uh, in the desert, and after 80 years of God working and preparing him, God comes now to the point that he's ready to start using Moses in a great way. And last week we talked about kind of the turning point was Moses and the burning bush. And we talked about the idea that uh, when God wants to use you, uh, he will take care of all the obstacles that you think are in the way. And Moses said, you know, hey, I, I can't do this. I'm not a good speaker. God said, well, we'll take care of that. I'll let Aaron speak. And you're going to see Aaron speak a little bit, but not much. Uh, in fact, even today, you're going to see, you know, at the end of it, Moses goes, hey, God, in case you forgot, I'm, I really, I'm not good at speaking. And it's interesting because when Moses says that, God doesn't even address it. God's like, yeah, I heard that before. It doesn't matter. Uh, I'm ignoring it. We're moving on. This is what you need to go do. And so uh, Moses has been challenged and Aaron have been challenged to go before Pharaoh. So they go to the children of Israel. They go to the leaders. You know, this is chapter four. They go to the leaders and they say, hey, look, here's the deal. God's going to let you guys out. Um, and the people were all, yay, 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 yay. And Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And Pharaoh basically says, and, and this kind of sets the scene for the next a lot of chapters. Moses And Pharaoh basically says, I don't know who you are. I don't know your God. And again, in that culture, Pharaoh was considered God. So it was kind of like, um, I, I, I don't know why you're even here, but I'm not about to do what you're asking me to do. And so Moses and Aaron leave. And where we left off last week at chapter four is Pharaoh decides that these people have way too much time on their hands. So he basically instructs the taskmasters, uh, the Egyptian, to keep their quotas the same. They've got to produce the same amount of bricks, but take away their straw. They've they got enough time to gripe and complain and mumble and want to go, then they've got enough time to go out and find their own straw. And so that's where we pick up the story this morning. Is, um, and actually this morning, uh, we're going to go to, we're going to read, we're going to, we're going to do Exodus 5, 6, and 7, all right? And so there's no way, you know, we'd spend the whole time just reading those passages. So uh, and let me encourage you sometime this week to read uh, the rest of it, to read it for yourself. Uh, one of the things that happened this week at the conference was, uh, again, you know, I don't want to sound like a carnal pastor, but I'm trying to get up, stay up speed. So I, I, I didn't take my Bible. I took my phone. And I, I put, uh, you, I have you version on my phone which lets me have all, all versions. It's kind of nice because when a speaker would stand up and he would start preaching, I just pull out my phone and go to that thing. And some of the diff different speakers spoke from different versions. So I just flip over to that version. So I, I would have had to have like four Bibles last week and I just have my phone. So uh, it was really nice. And so you can, I say that because if you have an app like that on your phone, then when you're sitting there waiting for somebody and you're at a doctor's office or at the dealership or whatever, wherever you're waiting and just sitting, uh, you can just, pull it up and read it. Uh, so let me encourage you, it's really nice to, to have that. And you can download it so that it's on your phone. You don't have to have Wi-Fi because, uh, you know, I'm anti-Wi-Fi hotspot person, okay? I checked in a motel and they went, oh, by the way, uh, we have free Wi-Fi. And uh, normally they go, and here's the password. They looked at me and said, 
Uh, we have free Wi-Fi, by the way, and don't worry, we don't have a password. You can just log on. And I'm looking at it going, no wonder people get hacked. I mean, you know, it's just, but anyway. Uh, so grab the version, read it for yourself. Uh, I'm going to hit, I'm going to take a couple sections out of 5, 6, and 7 for us this morning. So Exodus 5. Uh, the Israelite overseers, that'd be the leaders of Israel, realized they were in trouble when they were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required for you each day. And when they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. What happened is, because all of a sudden, you know, I mean, think about this. You're at work, you go to work tomorrow, and they say, oh, by the way, here's what you need to know. Um, we're not going to provide computers for you anymore. You've got to go out and buy your own computer. I, I, okay, so, so what are you going to do? <laughs> Nothing, yeah. Uh, no, you're, you're going to go into a boss and go, why are you doing this? This doesn't make any sense. Why are you doing this? And, and that's what they did. All of a sudden, this, the, the edict came down, keep, keep the same quotas, but we're not giving you straw anymore. You got to go get your own straw. And the people go to Pharaoh and they say, why? And this is the beginning of chapter 5. And he looks at them and basically says, look, you got time to want to go and come up with all these plans and you got time to go get straw. You're lazy, you're idle, so I'm going to go give you something to do. And so the people now, all of a sudden, so the people, these are the same people who were cheering Moses earlier are now doing what? Yeah, they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them, and they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials, and you've put a sword in their hand to kill us. Thanks a lot, guys. We didn't like being in bondage. But at least in bondage, it was okay. You just made it worse for us. Notice what happens next. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why, Lord, have you brought trouble on the people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on his people, and you've not rescued your people at all. So now all of a sudden, and again, if you've been in leadership, you understand this. That when you, when you do something and it makes stuff more difficult for people, that they're not happy about it. And even though your intentions might be good, they, they tend to, to push up against it. And what happens here is Moses now, in essence, comes to God and he goes, God, what are you doing to me? The whole purpose of this thing was to get the people out of bondage. We just made it worse for them. And here's, here's, in, here's in essence what Moses is saying. Look, God. I did what you asked me to do, and this thing's gone south. It's not supposed to go that way, God. You see, God, when I do what you ask me to do, it's supposed to go well. It, right or wrong, isn't this not our attitude when something goes south for us? When God's blessed us, everything's fine, but all of a sudden difficulty comes, and, and, and we sit back and we go, wait a minute, God, why is this happening to me? I'm doing what's right. I'm doing what, I'm trying to honor you. I'm trying to, be, but, but Lord, and because I'm doing that, it should go this way. And this is what happens. I mean, this is Moses, God's man, is going, God, what are you doing to me? I mean, God, I know you called me. I know you've told me that you wanted me to do this. I know you told me to go to Pharaoh, and I did everything that you've asked me to do, and Lord, it just made it worse. There's a great principle here. And uh, we'll talk about it at the end. 
so this is the idea. So he, he, he wrestles with him and, and this kind of thing, and he's doing what's right. And then uh, basically then you're going to get to chapter 6, and here's what happens. Uh, chapter 6, God, God talks to Moses, and there's a whole bunch that he says, and at the end he talks about, uh, does a bunch of family stuff. But Exodus 6, here's what he says. God also said to Moses, so God, again, Moses coming to God saying, God, what's the deal? Why in the world are you knew this? And, and here's what God says. I am the Lord. Now, we could just stop right there. That's really all, all, all God needed to say. Moses, I'm God, you're not. Go do what you're supposed to do. But God explains it to him. He says, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. This is the word El Shaddai. I appeared to them as El Shaddai. But my name, but by my name, the Lord, this is Jehovah, Yahweh, I am concept. I did not make myself fully known to them. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob didn't know Yahweh. They knew El Shaddai. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I've heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Basically, God says this. Moses, listen. I know you don't understand what I'm doing, but here's what you need to know. I'm God. I made a promise. I'm keeping my promise. I'm doing what I've said I'm going to do. Now, it may not be the way he doesn't say this. It may not be, Moses, the way you think it ought to go, but I got a plan. I'm, I'm in control here, Moses. I know, what I, need, I know what needs to happen, Moses. So Moses, I am Yahweh. I am a personal God. I am the I am. So Moses, you're going to have to learn to trust me and follow me here. And so what happens is Moses then has to kind of step back to it, and he goes to the Israelites, and he says all of this. And read Exodus 6. It's, it's fascinating. You know, what, you know what the children of Israel do? Moses comes to them with this. And the children of Israel do say what? Oh, okay, yeah, we'll follow, right? No, it, it's really interesting. It, it, the text says this. The Israelites don't even pay attention to Moses because of their circumstances. Because of the hardship. And there's a great principle there because what happens often when God speaks and God's trying to get our attention, we don't hear him, we don't listen to him. Why? Because we're so focused on the, the, the externals, the circumstances, the situation that we're in, that we, don't, we can't see or hear or pay attention to God. And that's what Moses is saying. He goes to these people and he's like, Guys, this is, listen, listen, God's trying to reveal himself and God's going to do some great things and you guys are just going to have to trust him and you're just going to have to follow him and you're just going to have to hang in there and the people are like, what? It's hard and we want out. We want it fixed. We want it to get easier. And it goes into this whole section at the end of, of chapter 6 about the history of Moses and, and his family and stuff like that and then it comes to chapter 7 and basically, at the end of chapter 6, the basically where God's, uh, Moses is going, I'm not a good speaker. And so God kind of ignores it. He gets to chapter 7. Here's what he says. Uh, then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. Again, Pharaoh thought he was God. And your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you. 
and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of this country. And this is very interesting right here. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt. Uh, there's a lot packed into this passage. Um, what's going to happen next is Moses and Aaron are going to go into Pharaoh. And they're going to talk about letting my people go. And uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating deal. What happens is uh, they walk in. Okay, so they got, they got, the, they got this, the staff thing. This is actually one of our, we actually got this and uh, we had somebody give this to us on a mission trip when we went to Jamaica. So this is our, really cool. They carve these things. It's a really cool thing from Jamaica. But anyway, um, they go in with the staff. And uh, God tells Moses, he says, here's what's going to happen. He said, uh, Pharaoh's going to ask you for a miracle. And uh, remember that rod and that whole deal? I want you to take Aaron and tell Aaron to throw his rod down. So they're in there before Pharaoh. They say, let my people go. And basically Pharaoh goes, mm, I don't know who you Prove to me your God's bigger than my God. And so Moses goes, hey, Aaron, that's your cue. Throw it down. So Aaron takes the staff and throws it on the ground, and it turns into the snake. And that's cool. That's awesome. And so Pharaoh now, chapter 7, Pharaoh now calls in all of his magicians and his soothsayers and, and everybody, and he says, hey, do you see what he's doing? Can you guys do that? And it's really interesting. You really, by the way, Bible trivia. Okay. Two guys show up by the name of Janus and Jambres. Okay. We know that from the New Testament. And they're two of the, the, the I think of this as like um, 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 kind of like two clowns okay, uh, showing up. And they're like, oh, Pharaoh, oh, yeah, hey, look, we can do that. And through all kinds of things, whether it was Satan, whether it was their trick sticks, whether it was whatever else, they throw their sticks down and they turn into snakes. So now just think about this for a minute. You're like, okay. This is cool. Now we got a bunch of snakes running around. And again, snakes were a big deal in Egypt. Uh, and Pharaoh's looking at Moses and Aaron and going, my guys can do that. That's no big deal. Now, God has an incredible sense of humor. And so God's snake goes over and swallows up the other snakes. And now... There's only one snake. Now, there's all kinds of implications for that. Okay? There's all kinds, because God, and, but, and you're going to see this, and we're going to come up against this quite a bit. In, in the beginning of the, the plagues of Egypt, you're going to see this a couple of times, where the Egyptians are able to mimic the, 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 the miracles of God. Okay? And it's going to be great, because God allows that. But at plague number four, it ain't happening no more. Because God wants to get across to the children of Israel and to the Egyptians, there is one God. And so what happens is, all of a sudden now, that snake eats up all the other snake, and then at some point Aaron picks it up, and the text says that what's going to happen is, Pharaoh looks at him and says, that was neat, I'm going to paraphrase it, that's not what the text says, um, that was really neat, but you know what, you're not going. And it says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Uh, we're going to see that quite a bit as we get into the plagues. 
Uh, seven times Pharaoh hardens his own heart, six times God hardens it. And uh, that's a, maybe that's a discussion for a Wednesday night Bible study. Because um, Wednesday nights we kind of take questions from different stuff. But um, it's, it's a fascinating study. And basically now Aaron and Moses walk out. And guess what? Uh, the people don't get to go. Um, so let's talk about a couple of things that, that as we head into this week from I'm just going to kind of try to pull one or basically one thing out of each one of the chapters for us this week. Um, here's the first thing. From chapter 5, I think one of the things that you learn is everybody's trying to blame somebody. The children of Israel are going to, going to um, Moses and Aaron and going, you know what, everything was fine until you guys got here. And, and even at the point Moses is a leader. And, and those of you who are in leadership positions, you understand this. You understand the idea that there are times you go before God and you go, God, I don't know what you're doing, but this is not easy. And, and, and in this situation, what happens here is Moses really starts questioning whether or not he should even be doing what he's doing. Because it's getting harder and harder and harder and harder and harder, and it should get easier and easier and easier. And Moses comes to God and says, God, why? What are you doing? Why, why, why? And God basically steps back and goes, I'm God, you're not. I think there's a great, great principle there for all of us because so many times we want to question why God's doing something because we think we know better. And those of you who know me know um, one of the things I am passionate about is almost to, to a fault is this, is this thing of glass blowing. Um, I love to blow glass. I, I, I mean, I'm telling you, you want to talk about me and my happy place, that's it. Put me in front of a furnace with... 2,000 degree molten glass and getting to play in there and, 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 and molding and shaping it. And so, and, and so Josh and I do that. Now we've, been, we've got the opportunity to, to have a, a hot glass shop at my, in the back part of my shed. And so um, our goal so far, we're doing good with it, um, is to get in there and blow glass at least twice a month. And so uh, tomorrow's the day, everything. So just hold on either today or Wednesday, or Tuesday, but don't mess up tomorrow, okay? All right? I keep telling her they need to name the kid Chihuly, but they won't, they're not going for it. But anyway, um, so we get to blow glass, and so tomorrow I'm just I'm looking forward to it. But here's what's going to happen, okay? Here's what's going to happen tomorrow. Uh, we're going to put about 30 pounds of glass in a furnace. We're going to melt it after about three, four hours. Uh, we're going to go in the shop. Everything's going to be all ready to roll. And then we're going to get to make stuff. Typically, in a five-hour session, we'll make somewhere between 10 and 14 pieces of glass. And every time we go in front, we get to decide. I get to decide what I want to make. So I go in, and I dip it in, and I, I dip in, and I get the glass, and I take it over the marveling table, and I, I, I decide what I want to do. I decide what colors I want to do. I decide whether I want to do a paperweight or a flower or a cup or a, or, or, or a sculpture. I make that decision. It's all my decision. The glass doesn't get to tell me what it wants to do. I go in and I say, you know what, this is going to be a paperweight. And I go in and gather the glass and I decide what colors. And I decide how I want those colors to interact. Do I want a spiral or do I want a, a, a freeform design or whatever else? And, and, and I get to do all of that. And then I get over and I go and I add more glass and I decide the size that it's going to be. And I decide all kinds of things. And sometimes halfway through, I change my mind. 
Josh said, last time we were doing this, Josh, I, he, left, he said, okay, I'm going to go grab supper and bring it. And I said, okay, great. So I said, I got this. So I'm working by myself and stuff like that. And, and, and it wasn't doing what I wanted it to do. And I thought, you know what? I'm not going to do a paperweight. I'm going to do a sculpture thing. And so Josh comes back in and I got this big, long, floppy piece thing that I'm trying to control. He goes, what in the world are you? I said, I changed my mind. You know why I changed my mind? Because I get to choose. Not the glass. Why? I'm the creator. I'm the one who decides. Can you imagine? Now, when we're all done, what happens is um, these pieces, as soon as you get it, you have to slowly cool them down or they crack. So they go into what we call an annealer, and they go in at 1,000 degrees. And at the end of the day, we bump, we, the controller automatically shuts it down. And it takes 100 degrees every hour until it brings it to room temperature, okay? So, so, so at the end of the day, I've got, we've got somewhere between, depending on what we've done, 10 to 14 pieces all in the annealer. Can you imagine if those pieces could talk to each other? Well, I don't know why you got to be a paper plate. Because I really wanted to be a flower. But they made a sculpture out of me. And I was going, well, you think you got a problem. Look at how twisted up I am. And this discussion about, you know, well, you know what? Did you see the colors they chose for me? I don't even like orange. And they made me orange. And I want to be red like you, like the beautiful rose that you are. Yeah, well, I got stuck being a tulip. Now, can you imagine that? It's almost comical, isn't it? God, I don't understand why this is going on in my life. Because you know what? So-and-so's life, he didn't, he, that's not going on in their life. God, I don't understand why you brought this into my life. Because you know what? I, I, I know people that are a whole lot worse off than I am, and you ought to see their lives. Why don't you do this to them like you did this to me? You, you almost wonder what the Creator thinks. And I think sometimes when we forget this very simple concept that God is God and we're not. And our job is just like the glass, to respond to the desires, to the plans of the Creator. And when we do that, the Creator, so, so when glass responds like I want, when the colors interact like I want, I create exactly what I want because I had a purpose in mind. Every time I put a set of jacks to it, every time I, 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 I put it on a marveling table, every time I add color a certain way, I've got a plan. I know what I want to do. It has to respond in the right way. And, and I would just challenge this because I think sometimes we, we don't, again, we don't see the big picture. We don't see what God's trying to do. We don't understand what God, but God is God. And our lives are his to do with and to use in any way possible for his honor and his glory. And God basically comes to the children of Israel and he goes, hey guys, listen, I'm God. I'm God. You get to chapter 7 and you understand that when you try to do what's right, difficult times come. Talk to anybody in leadership. You know, I, I have yet to meet a leader 
that you know, looks at me and goes, oh yeah, every decision I make, everybody that works for me is happy with. <laughs> I'm like, what do you like not decide anything? You know, what do you manage? Clowns? I mean, you know, come on. I, you know, what kind of world do you live in? Why? Because part of leadership, part of, of the, is you make decisions and there are unhappy people and people gripe and complain and, and everything else. And I think sometimes as Christians, we do that with God. And we go in and we go, God, you know, I don't, I, this shouldn't happen this way. And, and I think one of the things that you see in this story is this. What does God come back to? God comes back to the idea of, listen, you got to know who I am. And I'm a big believer in that. I'm a big believer in your theology affects you more than you ever realize. And, and many of you, your theology, you really need to sit back and look at your theology and how you were brought up and what you were taught, and whether or not it's an accurate reflection of what Scripture teaches. I mean, there's some of you, you were brought up in abusive homes, and so your idea is that God is standing in line, waiting for you to get out of line, so He can hit you upside the head to get you back in line. And so your idea of God is kind of a bully kind of God. Some of you were brought up in a home where everything was a free-for-all, and so your idea is God's just loving and He's got no rules. And, and, and so that, that impacts your thoughts. Some of you were brought up in churches where you were taught that in order to be accepted, you had to perform a certain way. And your acceptance was based on your performance. And so you're always striving to kind of make God happy with you. And, and, and that really impacts the way you live out your Christian walk. And so... In, in, in this case, one of the things that I would say is, you know, God had to step back to Moses and go, okay, Moses, let me, let's go back, let's rehearse a couple of things, Moses. Here's who I am. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm, I'm the God who made them promises. And because I made them promises, I'm going to fulfill my promises. And by the way, Moses, they knew me as El Shaddai, the powerful, almighty God. The children of Israel are going to see that again. In the plagues, you see that played out. But the children of Israel are also going to see me as Jehovah and Yahweh. They're going to see me as a personal God who cares about them, who fulfills his promise, and will ultimately bring them out of bondage. And I would challenge you, if you're going through a tough time right now, step back and really ask yourself, what's your view of God? And ask yourself this question, what has God promised you? So often, my wife and I come back to this idea of, of what God has promised. You know that old song, Standing on the Promises of God. There's, there's a tremendous amount of truth in that. Has God promised my life's always going to be easy? Nope. Has God promised I will never go through life alone as a believer? You bet. Has God promised that anything that comes into my life will go through his hands first? Yes. There's no testing taking you, but such is a common man. God's faithful. Won't let you be tested. Won't let you be tempted above what you can handle. He knows your limit. He won't let it go past that. Oh, no, no, no. God's pushed me way past my limit. No, no, no. God knows you better than you know you. Has God promised that everything's just going to be, um, um, that if I serve him, everything's going to go well? No. In fact, Scripture teaches really just the opposite. The more you serve him, the more you become a target for Satan, and the more Satan wants to try to undermine that which you're doing. I heard a great quote this week that I think applies to all of it. 
the average person tomorrow is going to get up tomorrow and go to work. If you're a Christian, you're going to get up tomorrow and go to war. Because the fact that you want to call yourself a disciple of Christ, a follower of Jesus Christ, means you've got a target on your back and Satan's going to do everything he can to try to sidetrack you tomorrow. You're in a battle tomorrow if you're a Christ follower. The people who are not followers of Christ, who are not disciples of Christ, who are not Christians, they're going to go to work. And you're going to have that person who gets under your skin show up at your desk, on the phone. They're going to be there. You know why? Satan is alive and well. And there's going to be things that are going to set you off or they're going to have the temptation to set you off and push you over the edge tomorrow. Why? Because Satan knows if he can get you sidetracked, he can win, he can win a little battle. And all of us tomorrow, all of us the rest of the day, we're at war. There's a spiritual battleground, there's a spiritual warfare to try to sidetrack us and get our eyes off of God and onto our circumstances and situations. And I think the other thing that you see... Um, in chapter 7. And this is a little bit odd, but I, I, I do want to I, I hit it. Um, at one point, Satan mimicked everything that God had done. At one point, you don't just have one snake, you've got at least two more on the ground. And here's what you're going to see. You're going to see this as we talk about the plagues as well. Satan... Satan mimics that which God does. He just tweaks it a little bit more. And it takes a wise, discerning Christian to look at it and notice there's something different about that. It's interesting. Even the text talks about this. Those snakes were smaller than, the, than, than God's snake. Not a big difference, just enough. And this is what you find Satan doing. And, and one of the things that I think is a challenge for us, and it, for those of you who are in your teens and 20s and early 30s, listen. This idea of discernment, this idea of stepping back and being able to figure out what's of God and what's not, is a key to whether or not you do well as you go forward in trying to follow God. Or you get sidetracked. And it's interesting because what happens is at one point you've got all of these snakes going on, but God's snake is different. It's more powerful. It is, it, it, it is different. And what's going to happen is, is you've got to be able to discern which one is which. And Satan right now sells us a lot of stuff. Here, here's some of the, here's, I just wrote down a couple that's, that, that, that apply to me, okay, that, that, that I have struggled with over the years. Satan tells us that love is about emotions and feeling. You know what God says? It's about loyalty and commitment. Satan will tell us that success is important. God says significance is. Make a difference in the life of somebody. Well, best books I read... Probably, probably 20, 25 years ago. I need to read it again. I saw it in the bookstore and, and thought, yeah, yeah, and they actually still have those guys, kids. Um, uh, I saw it in a bookstore, uh, Liberating the Ministry from the Success, from the success Syndrome. And it talked about the idea that in ministry, you really need to define early what you see as success. 
And it really helped shape and mold a lot of things that I thought were important in ministry to things that God says are important in ministry. And I would challenge some of you, at what point do you see yourself as successful? You know, for some of you, it's, you know, how many cattle or, or how many acres or how many, you know, how, how much a farm? You know, for some of you, it's a title or position or, or a set income. It's close, but it's not what God says. It's what Satan has sold us. Here's the one that I think will hit most of us. Most of us tomorrow will do what's, in, what's urgent. You'll go through your list of things that you've got to get done in order to come to the end of the day and, and check it all off and go, I got it done today. Listen, I live in this world, okay? I, I'm a checklist person. And I'm, I'm obsessive about it. I'm to the point that if I do something that's not on the list, I put it on the list so I can check it off. So I, seriously, I do that. I'm like, I'm like, okay, oh, you know what? Hey, I got this done today and I haven't, just because I want to look at the list and feel like I've done something. And you know what gets on that list more than anything? Urgent stuff. And there's a little book came out years ago called Tyranny of the Urgent. And it's the idea that Satan has sold us a bill of goods so that we spend our lives doing that which is urgent and we neglect that which is important. And I would challenge you to sit down with yourself and say, what's important? What's unique about my job? is I get, a front row, I get a front row seat to life. And I get to go to the hospital when some of these kids are born and, 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 and I'm in the room when people die. And I get to see people in the, in, in the hospital and I get to see people doing fun things together with them and I get to see the whole gamut of life. When you do that, it gives you a unique perspective. And one of the things that I do is I've sat back and I've tried to listen as people come to the end of this thing that we call life and listen to the things that they talk about, listen to their, their regrets, listen to the things that they say, I wish I would have done this. I wish I could go and redo this. And one of the things that I have observed is that those things fall in the category of important, not urgent. And I think... Those of you who are parents, you know this. You know how you spend so much time on urgent things. And as your kids grow up and they start to move away or they get out of the picture, you sit back and go, you know what? Listen, I I watch my dad do this. Every time I visited my dad for almost 10 years, I heard him apologize. Because my dad... My dad was a type A CEO executive type. And, and my dad, his, again, and I inherited some of it lawfully. Um, but, you know, I mean, I can remember my dad would be on the road for five days. He would come in on a Friday night. He would change into his ref clothes. He would go and he would ref. And then on Saturday, um, he was at the airport uh, giving flying lessons and, and, and flying and working on the next. Uh, at, one point he was working, at one point, he had an opportunity to get his jet rating. And then on Sunday, we would go to church. And then Sunday afternoon, we would go to the airport. And um, that's where I got my passion for skydiving, which my wife won't let me do anymore. But, um, and, then, and then Sunday night, we would go back to church. And then Monday, he'd be on the road, and we'd do it all again. 
And I listened to my dad beat himself up every time going, I wish we would have spent more time with you. I wish we would have spent more time with you. I wish we would have spent more time with you. I didn't want his story to be my story. But I realized I had changed some things. Like we talked about in Sunday school. Um, direction determines destination. And um, what I would say to you is to step back from your life and take an honest look at your life and ask yourself, are you pursuing that which Satan has that imitates that which God really wants? And this week, are you going to do all the urgent things on your list or are you going to do the important things? You go, well, I'm going to do the important things. Okay, so what, what, what is that? What is it that you say, you know, I should be doing this? Okay, do it. Um, you know, one of my life goals is to come into my life in two words, no regrets. You know, and for my wife and I, I mean, you should know, we love being together and we love traveling together. And one of the things that I learned a long time ago is I've listened to too many people at the end of their journey in this thing called life look at me and say, I wish we would have taken that trip. I wish we would have taken that trip. We, we waited till retirement and then our health got bad or our finances wouldn't do it. And I looked at my wife and I said, it will never be our story. So all of those bucket list kind of places that people go in retirement, we're doing now. Um, this, where is it? This, this year, Moab, Utah this year. Yep, Moab, Utah. You go, why? I don't know. Just always want to go there. So we're going. You go, what's in Moab? I don't know. We're going to find it out. And we'll take a lot of really cool pictures, and we'll do more walking than I like to do, but we're going to Moab. Why? Because I don't want to come to the end of my life and say, Gina, we always talked about going to Moab. Why? Because you know what? I know when I come to my end of my life, that is going to be important. It will never be urgent, but it is important. And I just want to challenge you because Satan, he throws a lot of counterfeit stuff out there for us. A lot of us, I love my stuff. Just like you love your stuff. Don't have any problem, okay? When your stuff gets in front of God, that's a problem. But you know what? We're not careful. We put things over people. Counterfeit. We think that's what will bring joy. That's not what's going to bring joy. You know, you look at the things that are important in your life. Again, I've, I've dealt with enough people at the end of their life's journey to know this. You know, I have yet to go to a nursing home or in a hospital and somebody say, Pastor, I would really love somebody to bring my combine and park it out the door so I could look at it. You know, any people I've heard say, I wish... I had friends who would stop and see me. I wish I invested and my kids would want, would, would want to be here. Why? Things over people. They focused on the counterfeit instead of the real thing. I think there's a great lesson in chapter 7 for us. So, you know, as we, as we wrap it up, read 5, 6, and 7 on your own this week. Um, there's a lot of stuff in there. I'm just hitting... The things that you go, well, you know, you're talking to me. I, I don't. Here's how I do this. God, what do I need? Because if I need it, you probably need it too, okay? And so these are things that hit hard on my life this past week. Here's, here's what I would say. God is God. He knows what he's doing. 
Difficult and trying times are going to come. It's a result of life. We've got to focus on who God is and what he promised. It is our responsibility to be discerning as God seeks to work and use our lives for his glory. Let him use you this week. And he will. Let's pray. Lord, it's sometimes easy to get sidetracked. Lord, this, this, your word gives us a great opportunity to kind of take a microscope to our lives and see things that we tend to ignore. So help us to not just hear, but help us to apply. Lord, for those that are struggling, may they be able to see you clearly this week. Lord, for um, those who have priorities kind of sidelined. And Lord, the things, they kind of swallowed after some of the things that are counterfeits and hoping that it'll provide the real things that they're looking for. But Lord, those are only founded in what you teach us. And Lord, for those who have a tendency to be fighting you and blaming you and all of that, Lord, would you really help them to understand who you are this week? That you love them, that you care for them, that Lord, you as God, know what's best. So Lord, use us this week. And when it is all said and done, Lord, we'll give you the honor and the glory and the praise these things we ask in your name.